peace to you, and welcome to a sermon podcast from Richfield United Methodist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Sign up for weekly digital content at richfieldumc.org. Subscribe, share, and get out there with Jesus to heal a broken world. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have a good experience. This is the sermon podcast for the traditional worship service on September 29, 2019. The sermon title is, Are These Things So?, and it's part four of a seven-part worship series called The Neighborhood. The preacher is Senior Pastor Nate Melcher, and the scripture is Selections from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6 and 7. Here are these selections from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6 and 7. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue stood up and argued with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, oh, oh, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes, and then suddenly they confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never stops saying things against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat on the council saw that his face was like an angel. Then the high priest asked him, are these things so? And Stephen replied, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our ancestor Abraham and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and go to the land I will show you. Then he left the country and God had him move from there to his country in which you are now living. And God spoke in these terms that his descendants would be resident aliens in a country belonging to others who would enslave them and mistreat them 400 years. But I will judge the nations that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. The patriarchs, Jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all of his afflictions and enabled him to win favor and to show wisdom when he stood before Pharaoh, who appointed him to rule over Egypt. Now there came a famine, and Joseph sent and invited his father Jacob and all of his relatives to come to him. But as the time drew near for the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham, our people in Egypt increased and multiplied until another king who had not known Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt craftily with our race and forced our ancestors to abandon their infants so they would die. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful before God. He was abandoned. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in word and deed. Now when 80 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the new form, the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your ancestors, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for this is holy ground. I have seen and heard my mistreated people in Egypt, and I have come to rescue them and I send you to Egypt. It was Moses whom they rejected and whom God now sent as liberator through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out, having performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. They made a calf, offered a sacrifice to an idol. 
Our ancestors had the tent of testimony in the wilderness. Our ancestors, in turn, brought it in with Joshua, and there, there it was until the time of David, who found favor with God. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with anyone's human hands. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. My lip hurts really bad. I want you to know this. Not too long ago, I bit my lip during dinner, and it was a bad one. Have you ever bit your lip? You know, so it's in the inside part, and it was just, I could hear that squishy crunching. It was like boots in snow. It just, and I yelped, and it startled my kids, and there was blood and throbbing pain the rest of the night. It was bad. Uh, that was about a month ago. I keep biting my lip in the same spot at least once a week since then, if not more. Have you had this? Because it's all swollen. It's big and puffy, and so it sticks out there, and so you just accidentally keep squishing on the same spot, and it can't ever heal. We have a sore spot. That's my sore spot, but we have a sore spot in the United Methodist Church we keep biting. In 1968, when the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Evangelical United Brethren merged to form uh, the United Methodist Church, we came together. But then in 1972, the United Methodist Church, during our general conference session, which is the democratic body elected to oversee the Book of Discipline, which is where we have our polity and how we're organized and all of our doctrines and social justice standings, that's when we added prohibitive language against persons who are LGBTQIA+. And it was painful. It's a sin that's antithetical to the gospel. We bit our lip that year, and we bit it hard. A big, puffy spot that won't go away. And every four years at General Conference, we bite again and reopen the wound that never gets to heal and scar with blood of harm, indignity, and mistrust. Now, friends, I, I hesitate to, to speak of all of this because in the whole story of how we got here, there's so many details to get wrong, and oversimplifying things is not always very helpful. Yet I'm convicted uh, by this Holy Spirit to speak to our denominational situation as a global neighborhood situation so that we as a local church know how it impacts us and could talk about what we can do to move forward with this movement called Methodism. If we look at the story, Stephen is a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, commissioned to go forth and do something new. He's arrested, and he's put on trial. And the authorities, they cannot stand him. They can't stand the wisdom and the spirit with which he speaks, so they conspire against him, and they find false witnesses. It's a setup. So when the liars, they say what happened, Stephen's asked, are these things so? And Stephen, he does not refute the charges. He doesn't roll his eyes and walk off. He tells them a story. He tells them their story, their shared story, the story of their people and their relationship with God. And it's not told their way, but he tells it in a way which emphasizes when God does something new. 
as God does something new in Jesus. That's where he's leading to. And God and Abraham meet, and God sets out to make the world right with this new partnership and a new land. And Abraham must leave the old way to start a new way. In fact, God makes covenant, sacred promise with Abraham in doing something new. And then Joseph is a rejected man, and in that rejection comes new life for his family and his people as they move to Egypt. And then he lifts up Moses as the rejected rescuer and sings his praises. He responds to the charge of speaking against Moses by affirming all that Moses brings to the table. A leader who encounters God in new ways, who leads people on a new path, who will not let a people remain enslaved in Egypt or enslaved in worshiping false idols, but be led to a new land of milk and honey with God. Stephen tells the story in a way that theologian N.T. Wright says is, quote, a matter of watching for the places, both in the story and in our lives, where suddenly God wants to reveal God's self afresh. There are burning bushes or near equivalents all over the place, if we know where to look. Friends, God is always doing a new thing, and we are called to look for that new thing and partner up. Now next week, you'll hear from Reverend Hope about what happens at the finale of this speech. And many of us already know what happens to Stephen, St. Stephen. But now let's consider the value of reframing and retelling the story the way he does. The United Methodist Church has this long history with roots to the 1700s, to the lifetime of John and Charles Wesley. And you could argue you could go back even further if we think about how each generation influences the generation to come, right? And if you ask different people to tell the story, they're going to tell it in their own way and emphasize what parts really they think matter the most or perhaps even serve their agenda the most. And that includes our current sore spot of LGBTQIA justice as a church. We as 12 million global neighbors in the United Methodist Church tell the story differently. We see the past, present, and future differently. And T. Wright goes on to ask this question that we must ask ourselves, friends, quote, what new stories will people tell in the days to come as they look back at your church and ask what new things God was doing in your day? I'm going to take a stab at our story as United Methodist neighbors and where we go from here. It's, it's oversimplified. It's just a rough sketch of that story. Let's look at some slides. So United Methodist Church is experiencing a great divide over justice for and full inclusion, inclusive ministry with our LGBTQIA siblings. Now, if you don't know that acronym, that is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual, and the plus is for, et cetera, and so on, as we continue to learn more about identity. Now, for some of us, some of those words are still kind of new. I remember as a child, queer was a slur every time. Maybe for some of you, too. But now we have young people who are gay or lesbian who identify as queer to take it back and wear it with pride. And I bring this up because as we as a church want to be a good ally church, a reconciling congregation, we do well to speak with authenticity and keep up with the conversation. 
Because when young people come into this church to worship or to be part of our events, if they hear us speaking with authenticity of who they are, that matters. It's your name if you say it's your name. So we do well to keep up with that. Now, I was at Leadership Institute all week, and uh, the Leadership Institute is a uh, giant conference that happens once a year about this time of year, but it's sandwiched here on this slide between the General Conference special session in February of this year and next year's General Conference 2020 here in Minneapolis. So how did we get here as United Methodist Church? In 2016, at the General Conference, there were attempts to change language in the Book of Discipline, and things did not go well. Did anybody happen to watch that on the live stream? It was a tough watch. Uh, there was confusion, there was pain, there was mistrust. And then out of that came this thing called the Commission on a Way Forward. And it was created with this diverse team from uh, different theologies and different parts of the world and different ways of understanding the world coming together to recommend revisions to the Book of Discipline. And they met for about two years and they affirmed some plans, and then the Council of Bishops, they affirmed some plans, and then this so-called traditional plan arised. And then this February, the traditional plan was voted in, and the margin was 438 to 384, which is 53% to 47%. And what this traditional plan does is it affirms bans on ordaining LGBTQ clergy, and it affirms bans on officiating or hosting same-sex weddings. But here's something else that people don't always think about. The traditional plan isn't the way it's always been. The traditional plan has harsher penalties than ever before. So now, God, I should have written it down. I believe, if I remember correctly, if I officiate a same-sex wedding and I'm brought up on charges, uh, I will uh, have to leave the church for one year without pay, first offense. Second offense, you lose your credentials. That's a much harsher penalty across the board than we've ever had before. That goes into effect January 1st, 2020. That's right around the corner. Now, General Conference 2020 is here in Minneapolis. It's in our backyard, and uh, it's in May. And friends, we've got people in our congregation and in our conference who are looking to churches like us to, no matter how we're feeling about some of these challenging issues, still offer the radical hospitality of Jesus to all the 864 delegates who will be here, as well as the anticipated thousands of guests who are going to come and witness what's going on. And so we'll be talking about that as we get closer to May. But in the meantime, this week I was at the Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas. It's a Kansas City suburb for Leadership Institute. It's this annual conference that, uh, it's not annual conference, it is an annual conference uh, that happens where they have worship and workshops, and essentially they say, hey, here's what worked for us, give it a try in your church. Or here's what didn't work for us, if you're going to do it, do it in a smarter way than we did. And every year, uh, it's thousands of people from all kinds of churches, but this year, it was specifically for United Methodists only to speak about the future of our denomination. Next year, I want a whole team of us going. But for this year, I went, and uh, Core is a big church. That's a big church. Here, this dot, that's actual size. That's a person there, right? So it's big. That's building A out of building A, B, and C. Trustees, want to have fun with that one? Uh, 
have fun, right? Uh, they just built that sanctuary a few years ago. I think it was a $90 million capital campaign, which also included several millions of dollars for outreach as part of that campaign, kind of a, um, a comfort and joy in the midst of that. The sanctuary has an, here's a very big picture from the uh, interior, from the balcony. This church is, I've heard, around 20,000 members, give or take. Uh, it's like, it's the mega church of Methodism. And uh, that's if you count all the people from their different campuses, different worship services, and worshiping online. So here is a uh, panoramic shot from the very back of the balcony, and you can see all the seating. Here's the, where the baptismal font is, and the speaker, the preacher. Here's this beautiful window of, uh, of Jesus in the back. Gorgeous. It's huge. It's probably like as big as this wall here. A uh, giant window of Jesus, and you have biblical history into church history, and then Jesus with this dual stance of, I love you, come to me, but then at the end of worship, get out of here and go love people. I think this would make a good puzzle. Are, are there any puzzle people here? Who's really into puzzles? Anyone who's really into puzzles? Because I'm serious, I bought the puzzle, <laughs> and if anybody wants to do that this week, you can take it with you. Who wants the puzzle for the week? Here you go, John. All right. It's only 500 pieces. Don't lose the Jesus pieces. We need those the most. All right. Uh, in the next slide here, we got... Uh, oh, yeah. So here's my favorite thing about the Church of the Resurrection. It's not the fancy building. Uh, it's actually these three statements here, which are all on their wall. It's their uh, purpose, our vision, and our journey. Here's what it says. Our purpose to build a Christian community where non-religious and nominally religious people are becoming deeply committed Christians. Now, notice they're not targeting everybody. They're not trying to appeal to everybody. They're trying to target specific neighbors, people who don't know Jesus or are tired of the way that Jesus was shoved down their throats when they were younger. They know who they're after and who I so they can get out there and do it. And then their vision is to be used by God to change lives, to strengthen churches and transform the world. This is how they see themselves being used by God to carry out that purpose. And then there's their journey to know, to love, and serve God. This is what we'll do along the road toward our purpose with vision. And friends, I guarantee you every single member of that church knows these three things and it fuels everything they do as a church. That's why I like this church. That's why I respect it. In case you think I'm saying that they're a perfect church, uh, I do want to note that even with that fancy building, even the Church of the Resurrection occasionally has to put up a sign at the last second on the door. So uh, fancy signs here every day, and then, oh yeah, the Haiti meetings here, turn to the left. Now, uh, one of my highlights for this conference was Pastor Adam Hamilton and New York Times columnist David Brooks having a conversation. I know that this church has read some of Adam Hamilton's books. I think Pastor Eric preached on uh, my, uh, The Way this spring, right? Uh, that was an Adam Hamilton book. And some of you know David Brooks through the New York Times or through PBS. And they had a conversation. David was one of the keynotes. And uh, what I really liked about it was that there was a point where they were talking about getting to know your neighbors like our current worship series. 
And I, I happened to shut up my camera just in time to catch about a minute of what they had to say. Now, they both speak very fast. You think I'm a fast talker. Oh, my gosh. These two are very fast. So I went ahead and I put in some subtitles, uh, kind of in between where they are on the jumbotron and where they are on their floor. But uh, take a look. We, we quote the, the chart of shame. We get you put your house here, list the six or eight houses nearest to you, write down the names of the adults in that household and the kids. And nobody, almost nobody can do that. And so I go around the country telling people, you know, we don't know our neighbors. And I said that once at a dinner in um, New Orleans. I got these weird looks. It's like, no, we all know our neighbors. <laughs> so in New Orleans, they, they have a culture where you can know your neighbor. Where I live, if somebody knocked on my door at 8.30 at night, it would be the most savage violation of privacy ever. <laughs> and so it's, this is not inevitable the way we live. So that's just an idea. Some of you have done this, but and maybe you live in New Orleans and your community is different. But for those of you who your members don't necessarily know the names of all their neighbors, you know, to think about the neighbors on every side of them, and then to ask the question, what would it mean for us to literally love our neighbors as we love ourselves, meaning the people who actually live around us? And we struggle with trying to get people to come to church today, but what happens if you're actually letting your light so shine before your neighbors and you're so loving them that you have compelled them by your magnetic witness? And, and then somewhere along the way is the invitation to Candlelight Christmas Eve or something else, but it starts with actually caring about the people who live around you, which is what you're trying to teach people how to do, and I so appreciate that. So the pastor at the biggest United Methodist Church and one of the most famous columnists are talking about exactly what we're doing with our neighborhood journals. That's pretty cool. So uh, maybe it's important, right? In fact, uh, I went and saw the discipleship ministries table, and they had all of their different See All the People swag, and I saw our, uh, our journals are right there in the middle, and oh, they have pens now. I know they have pens. A few other things. I told the people at the table what we were doing with the journals and the luggage tags, and they said, that's awesome. Here, here's my card. Can you write something? Can you shoot a video? So they are excited by what we're doing with these journals. So friends, we have to make sure we're doing what we're doing with these journals. I really want you to be doing this. Uh, growing churches are giving this a shot. So we had 62 of us from Minnesota there. That's a pretty good showing at Leadership Institute of both clergy and laity. So what did we do there? Well, they showed us plans. Plans are an interesting thing, aren't they? They have a way of getting complex quickly. Here's your plans, no problem. Here's how plans often work. A little different, right? But we heard all these different plans, and, and we didn't hear all of the different plans that are going before General Conference 2020, uh, but there were a lot of things said that were exciting. I heard in some of these plans words like rejecting and overriding the traditional plan. I heard words like eliminating the prohibitive language. I heard restoring dignity to LGBTQIA plus people. And then I heard some language that's a little nerve-wracking. Words like disaffiliation and disillusion, where we would dissolve the church. And I heard about another plan that says, well, we'll be a network for three to four denominations all under this one umbrella that's connected by assets and money. Because there's a lot of money involved in this. So what's the right plan? 
What's the way forward? What direction is best for, for me as a, as a person or for us as a local church or as an annual conference or as a denomination? I don't know. The presentations were very brief, and almost every single one ended with, you're going to have to read it. And then a call to the general conference delegates to please read it so we can trust the people who we have elected to make the votes across the world to actually read what they're voting on. I have to read them. I've got to talk about them. I've got to pray on them. And many of us will have to do that. For me, I've got friends and colleagues who I respect on leadership teams of at least four of the major proposals for the future of the United Methodist Church. And I love them all, and I want them all to be right. If I could cherry-pick from this plan and that plan, I don't know. But we'll have to keep talking about it. But two questions keep coming up to me while I was at that conference. And it's those two questions raised to Simon Peter at Pentecost. What does this mean, and what should we do? So what does this mean? Here's some of my takeaways. I have five takeaways. One, the Minnesota Annual Conference is a leader in this. There are some annual conferences who are not organized at all. We have a contingent of grassroots movements here in Minnesota where we have got churches getting connected and getting busy on what we want to do. And they're making some contingency plans if we do dissolve as a denomination and need to find a new structure. They're making up plans for what we're going to do for solidarity, for protest, for uh, living into a new vision of inclusivity and equity as a conference. We're a pretty good leader for a pretty small conference. My second takeaway is that there are some people who are not talking about any of this at all. And then there are others who are tired about speaking about it in any way. There are some churches where they're not talking about this even though it's a part of who we are. And so we could be mad at our neighbors who aren't talking about it. We could call them out for ignorance, willful or otherwise. Or we can be their loving neighbor, be a resource to them, walk with them, as many of us had to be walked with too. And then for the churches who are tired of this, their churches, their people, friends, they made up their mind on this 10 years ago, 20 years ago. This conversation's done. They're over it. And then for some, they do themselves a disservice by not keeping up with the conversation. Like I said before, there's a big difference between referring to somebody who's gay as homosexual, a word that most young gay people will not self-identify with, and knowing and being able to say LGBTQIA plus without stuttering. My third takeaway is that this is not the only thing going on at General Conference 2020. There's going to be a lot. We had the special session this year, three days, one topic. This will be 10 days, hundreds of topics. So it's a little bit more complex this year. My fourth uh, takeaway is that the mission must be clear and it must be valued more than the methods. We had a lot of talking about all the different ways in which this church is saving lives in the world through UMCOR and advanced specials, boots on the ground in places like Haiti during the earthquake. We're all over the place, saving lives, changing lives in the name of Jesus as a church. And we've got great methods to do that. But if we're losing sight of our mission, if our mission isn't one of inclusivity and justice, does it justify the methods that we're using? Some might have to be let go. 
So there's discussions on hard realities as we save lives in the church. Do we have to do it in new ways? Last year at the Leadership Institute, I heard from a, a United Methodist pastor down south named John Ed Matheson. And this is one of those guys where you come for the workshop, but you jot down every quip because he's throwing them out like a clown throws out candy at a parade. And this guy had one that stuck with me all year since last year. He said, you marry your mission, you date your methods. You stick with that mission of bringing Jesus Christ to people, and you have a good method for now, but don't get tied down to that method. Stick with the mission. We might have to think about that as a denomination. My fifth takeaway is that change is possible. I watched out of there with some hope. People talk about change being hard, change being inevitable. Those are true, but that's a different kind of framing. To me, change is possible, and we can walk into it. So what should we do? Friends, God's calling our church. Here are five things that we can be doing as Richfield United Methodist Church right now. Don't stop now. We are a busy church, friends. Families moving forward, caring for children, neighborhood events like social justice speakers, the carnival, concerts, the pumpkin party, movie nights, great music, we're hosting groups. We have food drives, supply drives. We have prayer, pastoral care, being there when our neighbors need Jesus to show up in the form of us. Don't stop now. God still needs our church to show up. Second, do get involved and informed and involved. As we get closer to General Conference 2020, we're going to make some materials available to you. We'll hold some forums, and we're going to rekindle our reconciling team and build up our General Conference unpaid servant volunteer team and participate in the season of resistance as a church. Third, always, always pray. Soon we're going to unleash our Breakthrough Prayer Initiative. And the Breakthrough Prayer is the cornerstone of the MCCI journey into our next steps as a congregation. And everyone will be expected to pray that prayer every single day. Now, friends, I know we have not always been a high-expectation membership church. But this will be an expectation of every member of this church to pray this breakthrough prayer every day, to pray that God will break through and do something new in the midst of our congregation. And I'm asking you to commit to prayer every day, and we'll give you the resources you need to make prayer a meaningful part of your everyday life. Fourth, love your neighbors. You've got neighbors who don't agree with you on LGBTQIA plus justice. You do. I do. They're in your denomination. They're in your annual conference. They're in your local church. We don't all agree 100% exactly on this issue. So friends, I want you to hear me now. No matter how you feel on this issue, I am your pastor, and I love you, and I care for you, even if we disagree. I want everyone to know that you are all welcome here, 100%. God calls us to nothing less. We don't all agree on everything. We're not a homogenous group. You pick any aspect of this church, and you watch what conversation will happen. Should we do pews? Maybe we should put in chairs. Should we talk about the carpet? No, let's not talk about the carpet. Does Pastor Nate need two speedboats or just the one? I thought we settled this. That's how rumors start, right? 
Here's the thing about people we disagree with. God loves you. God loves them. God loves us to love each other, even if we disagree about which, that which we're passionate about. And fifth, tell the story. Stephen tells the story of God and humankind. It's a story they know, and he frames it with God's mission of meeting humankind where it's at and inviting them to the next step. We can tell that story. We can frame that story too. So speak up. Don't bite your lip. Tell the story of Jesus. It's a story of hope, of justice, and grace. God is always doing a new thing, so let us partner up. May it be so, and amen. This has been a sermon podcast from Ridgefield United Methodist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, copyright 2019. Now, go into God's world, knowing that you are a beloved child of God, and bear witness to the love of God, so that those to whom love is a stranger will find in you a generous friend. Thanks for listening.